This week on Hacker in the Fed, you can't always count on Google for the right telephone number for an airline. An American cloud-based directory as a service platform announces that they were hacked by a state-sponsored hacker. Millions of U.S. military emails may have gone to a foreign country because of a typo. A new ransomware looks like a Windows update. And we answer listener questions about a healthcare attack, the NSA giving money to help students' educations in cybersecurity, and Hector tells a fascinating story about a hacking methodology. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent who's been working my entire career in cybersecurity. And now I'm a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsegur, a friend and podcast co-host. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, cybersecurity expert, and like I said, close personal friend. Hector, how's life going? Life is going indeed, white friends. I can't complain. How about yourself? Good, good. No, it's good. So just, you know, uh, yeah, we're recording this at night. Uh, it's nice and cool. It's been a long day. Uh, so, you know, it's nice to throw on a set of headphones and sit down and chat with you for a while. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to start off this episode with asking super dumb law enforcement questions. All right. Go ahead. I don't know about you guys, the audience here, but call me crazy. I like to go to bed with like those crime YouTube channels where they do like interrogations. They play recordings of interrogations. And there's one interrogation in particular of a Texas Ranger. And he is so badass. But, you know, you got to read the comments. The comments are like, wow, this guy's really into himself. He starts off the conversation or the interrogation rather with, hey, I am so-and-so. I have been a Texas Ranger for so-and-so amount of time. Did you know that in order to become a Texas Ranger, you have to be like the top 1% echelon of all law enforcement in the state of Texas? And he goes through his whole resume before he even asks the guy a question, right? I thought that was pretty cool. So with that being said, you were a special agent with the FBI. Is there like a Texas Ranger of the FBI? Is there something above special agent? Above? No. There's no nothing above us. What? What? Why? Why would you even ask that question? I don't know. I was just I was curious. I was like, damn, is there something above that? Because like that interrogation, I'm gonna send you the link to it by the way. Because it's I would love for you to give me your opinion on that on that on that uh, that officer's uh, or that ranger's uh, technique. I am kidding. I am kidding. There's there's no position as far as interviewing. Now there's people that specialize. There are people that specialize just in you know interrogation of criminals. There's People mm -hmm. in the FBI that specialize in like interviewing victims. There's people that interview children, child victims. Um, you know, so that's a specialty that you kind of develop and get extra training on and that sort of thing. Um, but but all special agents when we're in the academy go through interviewing and interrogation techniques. Um, so they teach you. They teach you how to build rapport. Teach you how to set up the room for you get the best answers. Um, how to sit. How to position things. Really, their the approach that they teach is more of a compassionate interview than a go through and um, 
you know, kind of give your whole resume. I mean, maybe that guy was applying for a job or something. But when I was in the FBI, you weren't allowed to record interviews. And so maybe, you know, maybe when the cameras are on, like this guy like turned it up a little bit more. No, definitely. I mean, he turned it up enough that I think that, uh, you know, he convinced the guy just to admit his crimes. <laughs> it was what happened at the end of the interrogation. The guy was just, he just gave up. Well, the guy, uh, they wouldn't put it on YouTube if he didn't. Oh, yeah. Who knows? Maybe no, the other absolutely. guy was a ranger. It was all set up just for this guy to get his resume out, out there on YouTube. <laughs> sometimes, oh, yeah. sometimes I'm a cynic. No, it's good to be a cynic sometimes, you know, to kind of think outside the box and, and play the uh, or look at it from a different angle. I, I try to do it as much as I can um, in my everyday. But I tell you, it's consuming, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I try to see it from the other side. And if I ever have an argument with someone, I try to see their point of view and try to step back. But, man, you talk about sometimes it's good to be a cynic. No, I, I would not want to be stuck in the cynic world too long. That is uh, it's too much. It's too stressful on you. It's too too much going on. You know, I, I have people around that they all live like their whole world is lies. And man, I, it's just way too hard to do that. It's too hard to keep all the lies straight all the time. It's just uh, it's overwhelming. I remember, I remember when I was a kid. Shit, I think when I was 18, I took the NYPD test. I wanted to go into law enforcement, believe it or not. Really? All these years and I never knew you wanted to be a cop like me? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was 18, you know, I, I, I was in much better shape than I am today. That's for sure. And I said, okay. Weren't we all? Um, I'm either going to have to go down the, the route, of, route of being a cop or maybe I'll join the Army. And that's exactly what I did. I went down to uh, Park Avenue. There was like a, a center there. And I signed up um, for the, Na the Army National Guard. Really? And that, that same week, yeah, the same week I had a, a, a scheduled appointment for NYPD. I took the test as well. And um, NYPD, like after I passed, you know, I passed their, I think I had 97 percentile. They just kept blazing me every, every, like every week for um, kind of continuing that process. And I went to school, right? I was missing the college credits. So I, I went to BMCC, this borough Manhattan Community College, really, really good school out here. It's cheap. And I started the process. But unfortunately... You know, I got a really good paying job. <laughs> I say unfortunately because I feel like that job really derailed my, my potential career path that I was trying to get into. And I was like, wait, why am I busting my ass in college when I'm making, you know, six figures doing system administration jobs? Screw this. But yeah, that's my random story of the night. But yeah, I was, I was definitely interested in doing it. You know, I was definitely interested in, in, in going to law enforcement. I'm a kid that grew up with Perry Mason, older Perry Mason episodes. I watched a ton of Columbo episodes. I love Columbo. I'm not sure about you. Uh, I was more of a murder she wrote. Angela Lansbury. Murder she wrote. Super hot. Oh, yeah. She was hot. Oh, um, hot. Yeah. So that, that was me as a kid. I would watch all the, the reruns, man. And I was like, damn, maybe I could be a detective. Maybe I could, you know, kind of go that route. Until reality hit me. I'm like, okay, yeah. I just forget school. <laughs> I was, I was, you know, I was not ready for that. Mm. A time investment. Hector, um, we have breaking yeah. news. Literally breaking Whoa. news while we're recording the show. What? What happened? Are you ready for this? I, this isn't yeah. a setup. People will think this is shtick or a bit or something like that. And <laughs> shout out to Bit Season, but this is not a bit. Okay. Hacker and the Fed just went live. Wait, I thought we, we were live. The website for merchandise. It literally just oh. went live w w in the middle of your cop story. Nah, get out of here with that. I swear. Oh. Go and check it out. There's some stuff we need to change, some updates, mm -hmm. but it just went live. Wow, look at that. 
I'm looking at it right. That's that. Oh, that's nice. You got a little cookie warning thing there. That's dope. Well, you have to. We have to, I guess. Uh, but we got what do we got? We got short sleeves tees, distressed short sleeve tees, hoodies, embroidered hoodies, and full zip embroidered champion hoodies. We can take international orders. Man, we are set up. This is beautiful. So, guys, I know we had questions and I was going to do it at the end of the show, but hackerinthefed.com Ooh. is set up for your merchandise. Love it. Look at that. I love the hoodies, so, man. The zipper hoodies are dope. They're all good. Yeah, yeah man. The t-shirt. The, so I will say, um, I've got a couple of the t-shirts already. The t-shirts are so soft. The t-shirts are great material. And I'm not just pimping our product, but, you know, the it's really, really good t-shirt material. Not for nothing, though. Like, listen, yeah. you and a team, you know, put time into the, the logo. I think the logo is dope. There's yeah. something about it. Like, it's just like, I'm, I'm sold on it. All right. So, yeah, again, international orders are accepted. Just there's a little bit more in shipping because they're coming out of the United States. Sweet. But uh, but hackerinthefed.com. Yo, that's dope. I love it. All right. Yeah, so good, good, good. All right, right, let's jump into the show. Uh, I'm sure that banter was way too long, and Phineas is going to cut it out. He's probably going to cut out the merch store because he didn't get his hoodie yet. Um, So there's a new movement. We've got a couple, you know, (laughs) uh, things I saw this weekend is pound anti Phineas. You know, so it's really going to go bad this weekend when people realize how much. Well, see, that's the problem. No one ever realizes how much he really cuts out of the show. Oh, man, listen, you're really amping up that anti Phineas movement right now. I'm not trying to amp it. I just want Phineas to keep our banter in the show, and he's not doing it. Oh, man. All of this, all of this, I'm sure, is gone. <laughs> I listened to last week's show. We had at least an hour and a half of banter, and there maybe he had 30 seconds in that. <laughs> Damn you, anti-Phineas. Oh, yeah, pound anti-Phineas. We need a song for that. Man. All right, guys. Yeah, get it live on uh, on the uh, Twitter. Get it out there in social media. Elon, you put it out on Twitter because I know Elon still listens to the show. Sure. You know, if we want, we'll put up a uh, pound anti-Phineas shirt on the (laughs) the store. We'll really get this thing going, and he can leave the banter in the show. Yeah, he he does. He needs to leave the the anti – rather, he needs to leave the the banter in. I mean, half the emails we get is about the banter, just us talking shit here. We need to gain control of the show, Hector. I'll tell you that. All right, let's jump into the stories. We got a, a bunch of stories tonight. We got a bunch of listener questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of good stuff. So the first one is that Delta fake contact number on Google Maps. Ooh. So yeah, uh, the Twitter user. Uh, it's in the description. Mm-hmm. Want to go read this guy's uh, tweet story? Um, he was flying Delta and got canceled from a flight from JFK. Uh, he simply Googled Delta's JFK phone number uh, and called the customer service line. Um, thinking that he reached Google, he started telling them about he wanted a new flight. And after a few minutes, the call broke up and he got a call back from a French number that probably should have tipped him off that maybe he wasn't talking to Delta JFK. Then he had someone with a very strong foreign accent who was overly eager to help him. And then all he needed was give his confirmation number and his name. And the person on the other line was able to tell him about his trip, um, found an alternate flight from Newark, later that evening and texted him a screenshot for the, about the flight and needed him to confirm through SMS. The guys things thought things got a little bit kind of weird. And that's when he started doing a little research. 
Come to find out he was being scammed, Hector. And then he found that on Google, and specifically the, the edit the parts on Google Maps, all the airlines' telephone numbers had been changed to scam numbers. Wow, look at that. So this is a coordinated process here. I'm not seeing this in the news. This might be, you know, coming off cybersecurity Twitter, and we're putting out into the world, uh, and hopefully our listeners will know, um, there's a coordinated attack that's using Google Maps to try to get people to call scam telephone numbers when they're trying to reach airlines. Yeah, I mean, I would say a big shout out for uh, Shmuley here for kind of, you know, identifying the problem um, and then, of course, going live in public with what he observed. Um, you know, some folks, they'll, they'll run into kind of situation like this and they'll just downplay it or say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to move on in my life. They might even report it uh, to Google. But unfortunately, a lot of Google systems are automated. Um, so big shout out for him to go on Twitter and just kind of get the awareness out there. But also a big shout out to Swift on Security, very popular InfoSec Twitter account. You should follow it if you're not. And they kind of went into more detail. It seems like not only Delta is, um, you know, dealing with this problem. You have Southwest, Air France, Qantas, American Airlines, et cetera. And so, you know, Chris, you and I have discussed in the past uh, of scenarios where Google results, which would return ads, would kind of target the audience, target users in this similar way, right? By saying, yeah, you know, hey, we're in an ad for what you what it is you're looking for. Here's our phone number or here's our website. Click on our link. And of course there's some there's some fraud that takes place at that point. Yeah, we had that restaurant one the other day, the the couple of weeks back where yeah, you know, something I put a Google ad for a local restaurant and then was just charging twenty five percent more uh and then bringing the food over to the local neighborhood you know scamming people that way. But yeah, they continue. This one's different. Yeah, that's wild. And that, and that was done through Google ads. And for those of you that didn't listen to that episode or don't really uh, know what it is we're talking about. What's kind of, wrong with you not listening to all the episodes? <laughs> that's right. Um, there's always, uh, and this is not new, for quite some time, folks have been taking advantage of Google ads or other ad networks to hijack um, certain search results using, you know, black hat search engine optimization techniques. And the idea is that they want their ad to, to you know, end up in front of your eyes um, and convince you to click on it so that you would fall for their trap. And the trap is usually either, you know, a, a phishing page or malware in the form of a download. And even more curious, the one that, that Chris has brought up, the restaurant, um, they just wanted to offer you the same ordering service as the restaurant. With the difference is they would charge you a little uh, upsell or a little, uh, a little bit more than the restaurant, so they could have um, some PC out of it, some percentage out of that, out of that sale, kind of like a middleman. And this case is different, right, Chris? Yeah, they're uh, trying to commit fraud. I, I think in this particular one, there was uh, they they were charging five times the going rate um, for the for the flight, so would have booked the flight in your name and charged you um, quite a bit more than and pocketed uh, a big percentage of it. But the methodology, my friend, that's a big difference, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is really scary. That, that So these aren't like fake Google ads. Like the Google ads ones, I, you know, that's bullshit on Google. My, I, you know, That's how I feel that, you know, that Google is allowing people to set up ads are, are fake phone numbers to businesses. This is actually within Google's systems. Somebody is able to, you know, suggest a change or portray themselves as one of these airlines uh, and get Google to change it. 
uh, change the phone numbers. And even after these stories have been out for a couple of days, um, you know, some of the airlines numbers were changed, but they were changed wrong again. Yeah, I, I know that uh, I've had experience with with a, a friend of mine who has a business and adding the number and details to Google required that, that Google would send him some sort of code in the mail. And then he would take that code and claim the address or claim the location. Somehow that was circumvented here. So this might be something that Google may need to investigate on the back end. And I find it interesting that, um, you know, maybe there's something more simple uh, in terms of exploitation. Maybe it's not an insider threat. Could be, right? If we try to think about how this could have been done, maybe an insider threat, maybe an attacker or the operators behind this engagement figured out a way to circumvent that uh, that address verification process, okay? Maybe Google disabled that process since the last time I've used it. Um, or maybe some sort of bombing, right? A bombing of uh, spamming, rather, of of suggestions for that location. Yeah, I've tried to make suggestions on Google Map to my own property. And I, you know, I've done it three times with, you know, a large amount of time between each one. And it says it goes into the review process and I just never hear anything back, so... So somehow somebody was able to bypass that or, 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 you know, push it through faster to be able to change these telephone numbers for all of these airlines. What do you offer to people? Like, what's the best way of finding a, a telephone number of contacting a business? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the most obvious one is go straight to the source. Go to Delta.com and, and make, sure you, make sure you type Delta.com correctly. So they talked about that and they said that, you know, the contact page, because most of these airlines want you to interact with the website, interact with AI and, you know, take the person out of it because, you know, it's, it's cheaper for them to have you interact with the computer system. Um, it said it was very, very hard to find a real phone number on their Web page, which, I, you know, I didn't look at. But, you know, for, for I know for banking, if I ever have a question about banking or anything, I always go to the back of my credit card or my back of my debit card and I call the number on the back of my physical card. I don't look it up. I don't, if someone sends an email or something, I, you know, that's the phone number I go to. So yeah, maybe I'm telling attackers how to get me to send me a fake credit card <laughs> with a phone number on the back, but good luck with that. I mean, listen, I'm doing this live. I went to Delta.com. I'm looking at the website right now on the bottom of the page. There is a section for contacting us, customer service, right? So let's, Let's look at that first. So this help center, messages or comments and complaints. There's three separate pages. If we go to the help center and we look for contacts, that's true. It's it, it. There's no number like right there in your face, right? Um, you have to go scroll down to additional assistance. Okay. All right. <laughs> Here's what you guys need to do. You go to Delta.com. You scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. You're going to see a customer support section. Then there is a basically um, kind of what I just read out right now, which is need help or help center. Sorry. Once you click on help center, you're going to see the Delta page with prepare for travel, manage your trip, day of travel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a comment and complaint section. Now, if you continue scrolling all the way to the bottom, there is a drop down menu called additional assistance. Yeah, but it's collapsed. Like you can't even tell what it is. Exactly. You have to collapse. You have to collapse you have that to section. It. Yeah. So you're going to collapse and or expand that section. And then you get the phone number for general sales and services. You also have the numbers for baggage and refund status and so on. 
So yes, I I agree with with what you just kind of pointed out, Chris. And yeah, and, and what these folks have pointed out that to get this number, you have to do you have to take several steps. You have to be a former hacker to navigate through <laughs> Delta's webpage just to find the phone number. Oh yeah, well. <laughs> Don't become a hacker just to do this. This is this. No, you, not <laughs> worth it. Yeah, it's not worth it. It's not worth the time in prison. But yeah, I agree. Like I, I see, I see the problem. I see folks, especially if they're dealing with a flight delay, a flight cancellation. The world is ending for them. Um, is hi- highly anxious of a, of a situation. I could see why missing the number on the website could be a thing, and then you know having to Google the number, right? Yeah. I, I will say, so I, I, my wife, I was talking about this story about my wife, and she told me a story that our local uh, Domino's down here ch- just recently changed their phone number to, to what it saw those makeup numbers 855 Papa. So, uh, so if you call 855 Papa, you get Domino's pizza and not so. Papa John's. Yeah, exactly. That's why they did it. <laughs> oh, man, that's slick. Yeah. So everyone's trying to get ahead of things, you know, hackers, bad guys, whoever it is, you know, even pizza places. So uh, are you a pizza man? Oh, I love pizza. Oh, yeah. Pizza. Pizza's the bomb. In fact, I, so. I'm, I'm in the mood for a slice right now, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I could go for a pizza, but it's sometime this week. So what's up? What you want to do? You want to link up, get some pizza? <laughs> yeah. Why not? All right. So. Let's do it. The next story. Jump Cloud discloses breach of state-backed APT hacking group. So what exactly is JumpCloud? Yeah, JumpCloud is um, it's an interesting company. They offer, I, I would say, a service that that's, it's very useful. There was a point where organizations really wanted to migrate to the cloud. That's one. Two, they wanted to get away from Active Directory. And then, of course, three, now that Zero Trust is, is becoming more of a prominent part of the everyday conversation for security programs, um, Jump Cloud is one of those companies that early on said, okay, look, we could provide some of this stuff or all of it and um, give you the capability to connect your employees remotely, wherever they are, um, into some sort of uh, like, a, like a virtual environment. They themselves explain, explain the business model as a directory as a service platform. Um, you know, there's no centralization. There's no centralized like active directory environment. Um, there's no... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely unique. It's interesting. It also provides single sign-on, which is great for organizations, and multi-factor authentication. Pretty solid company. I've done pen testing against their products before or environments with their product in place. And, I mean, I've seen some, some you know, some, uh, I would say, good defense mechanisms from, from some of the stuff that I've seen. But it seems like they've, they've run into an issue here. So they're providing single sign-on and multi-factor authentication services, and they have over 180,000 organizations in more than 160 countries, right? Wow. And they didn't think they were going to eventually be attacked. If you're protecting the single sign-on and multi-factor authentication for 180,000 organizations? I'm sure they did. I'm sure they were kind of waiting for it, right? I mean, this is this rings true of kind of like a last pass to me, like... Oh wow! I wonder. I can't believe they ever got attacked. Or oh man, I, I really can't believe the crocodile hunter. He he got hurt by an animal. That's crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of that that story, the Aesop story. You know, this the farmer girl and the snake. Um, you know, eventually, so eventually the snake is going to bite, right? So, as your organization grows, and by the way, they've only, they've 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 been founded. I mean, they were founded in 2013, so it's a very I would say relatively recent organization. Um, the fact that they have 180,000 plus organizations and clients 
that's amazing. Big shout out to them for for that for that broad um, um, exposure into the into the into the industries. But yeah, it seems like they were targeted, and it makes sense why they would be a target. They essentially have the keys to the kingdom for a ton of different organizations. It would only make sense that uh, an APT group would try to focus on them. APT, Advanced Persistent Threat. My bad. Yeah, the APT yeah, group right. or Advanced Persistent Threat. Um, they, they would definitely be a, a well sought after organization for sure. Judging by what's being said so far, obviously, folks, you know, and this is for the audience here. Um, when these details come out, when these stories come out, we don't really get the full picture. There's, there's probably a ton of technical data and technical information that we don't really know until some sort of instant response report comes out or the company decides to disclose it. And in some rare occasions, the attackers themselves would do kind of like a kind of like a, a, a like a I would say disclosure on how they broke in, and but that's more and more rare these days. It seems like the incident uh, occurred prior to June 27th, but it was discovered on the 27th of June, which is uh, not that far back, um, less than a month ago. It also seems like there was a social engineering or spear phishing campaign that took place, and again. I find this one to be interesting because you have an organization that has a strong focus on single sign-on, multi-factor authentication, and segmentation of, of privileges, users uh, by means of access controls. And this, if if this if what this story tells us is true, then there's an employee somewhere that's about to get fired if they got caught up in a spear phishing attack against an organization that provides MFA access. Yeah, that that's a, a tough pill to swallow. I mean, their whole you know their whole thing is about you know giving sign on and making sign on easier, and then one customer clicks on a bad link in a spear phishing attack. But but yeah, they're saying the incident probably was discovered on June twenty seventh. But then on the fifth, they you know discovered unusual activity. This quote, this is their quote: unusual activity in the command framework. So a small set of customers. So they think it was a very targeted attack. Uh, going after a small set of customers, but they did. Uh, the company required a forced rotation of all admin API keys. Um, so one of the things that uh, I'm going to really give props to to JumpCloud on this one, and this the story says that JumpCloud released the indicators of compromiser, what Hector and I in the business called IOCs, to allow partners to secure their framework from similar attacks. Um, from the same threat group. So, you know, big shout out to them to say, hey, guys, hey, my competition, this is how we were attacked. Protect yourselves uh, and don't get attacked the same way. You know, so, you know, th- th- I think that's great on them for doing that. Yeah, and, and and Chris, I just sent you the actual link to the IOCs list. Yep. In case the audience want to check that out. But um, from this list, where we and, we and we see this was updated July 14th, so a few days ago. They have a list of IP addresses that were used during the engagements. Um, they're recommended, recommending that you guys uh, block these IP addresses from your EDR, um, or rather from your NDR or, or network protection tools. And then also, um, you know, depending on the EDR product or the uh, endpoint detection response tools that you may have, you may be able to also add these indicators of compromise. There's a bunch of domains here. They seem pretty random. One is a zscalerapi.org. That's interesting. And there's another one, centospackage.org and datadogcloud.org or .com. Wow, this is interesting. Some of these domains are random. And then some of these are related to infrastructure uh, type websites. Like CentOS is a Linux distribution. And Data Cloud is a data aggregator service. 
the CentOS, uh, uh, rather Zscaler, is uh, is a service provider that provides zero trust. Interesting stuff here. They've also included um, the hashes for the malware in SHA-256 format, SHA-1 and MD5. So if you have an NDR, if you have an XDR, if you have an EDR, or anything in between that allows you to kind of input indicators of compromise, this will probably be a good start. But I tell you, looking at these domains, uh, my friend here, Chris, this might be part of a much bigger campaign. I think Jump Cloud just got hit on the on the, on the side because it, if 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 there's domains for Zscaler, CentOS, and Datadog, it's possible that these guys probably have a much larger larger campaign for sure. Yeah, it doesn't really match their message that they were just going after a small set of customers for this. You know, it sounds like a broader attack. Yeah, I would say a broader attack to get as much access as possible. But once they got into yeah. inv- uh, once they got into Jump Cloud here, it seems like maybe they were hyper focused on a few targets. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Interesting stuff here. You know, and folks, you know, the reason why we go through these stories, we kind of go through these IOCs sometimes with you, try to go through the technical details, to give you perspective. It's one thing to read the news and, and, and say, okay, or read rather, oh, my God, look, this site got hacked. Or, hey, this database got breached. Those sites give you, right, those, those stories give you uh, a cursory summary at best as to what's going on. But having the technical understanding of, of how it may have happened goes a long way for you know securing your own environments you know um so again uh, i agree with with chris here big shout out to jump cloud for releasing the iocs i think that's a very good first step and thank you for sharing them hector i'll put them in the description for the podcast so the listeners can have those iocs so yeah one of the last things so jump cloud hasn't uh, linked the atp group behind the breach uh no specific state or anything like that i'm sure like in the next week or so we'll hear about some like dragon's hemorrhoid or whatever group uh name uh whatever they're called on this week or every new thing uh will be you know named as part of it so you were never part of dragon's hemorrhoid were you no i was never part of dragon's hemorrhoid oh thank god i was i was part of fear the beer for a little while but oh yeah uh, that was back in the early 2000s yeah what about the what is it cults of the dead cow yeah, big shout out to them and, and, and folks that are still running the show there. Uh, no, were, I was never. Were you part ever of that. a part of? No. Oh, no, did you I, did you ever hang out with those guys? No, that that was a circle for only the cool guys. You had the guys oh. like Mixter from Germany, and you had some other folks that, uh, you know, they were they were top of the game at the time for security research. Would they think you're like some sort of noob or something? Probably, I'm sure they they still look at me like a noob. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plus, a lot of this, you, know, you got to look at a group like that. Yeah, they were hackers, man. They were researchers, but they weren't really into doing the kind of dumb shit that I was doing, you know? Yeah. Um, and even when you look at a group like Team Tesso, I, I recommend you guys like Google these names. Like They're very cool. It's cool hacker history. You look at a team like Team Tesso, those guys were very brilliant, smart. They would do research development and, and exploits, engineering. They did a whole bunch of cool stuff in the research field. Many of them are in the security industry now. So you might be walking into a security uh, conference and and bump heads with uh, or bump shoulders with a guy in a suit that used to be pretty much one of the top 20 hackers on the planet at one point. I don't know what security conference you're going to with bumping heads with everybody. <laughs> that, that sounds a little sketchy. That, it does sound sketchy. I've been bumped shoulders, man. Bump shoulders. I'm all bumping right, heads. Right. Yeah, bumping heads happens later. Yeah, it sure does. It happens after yeah. the conference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeez, Jeez, giving away all the cybersecurity conference details. Well, that's that's a difference, you know. Like, if you ever you ever try to type out infosec and actually accidentally type in infosecs, 
Um, it's happened to me, and the C is right next to the X, at least on my keyboard. Wait, you think we have different keyboards? Well, some people in our audience do. They have different keyboards. Oh, I right? forget. I, I forgot. There's other people listening to us. It's not yeah, just you and I talking. We're we're not we're not in the in the U.S. bubble, man. We we're we're international, yeah. my friend. No, no, I, I really sometimes forget people listen to this. I think it's just you and I making fun of each other. Just us talking shit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. We are extremely happy to partner with DeleteMe. Not only is DeleteMe a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used DeleteMe long before starting the podcast because DeleteMe's proven track record of removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of DeleteMe convinced me to start using their services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, you know, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit card, and even stealing your tax refund. DeleteMe is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. DeleteMe removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. DeleteMe has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is really easy to use. Your welcome email gets you started and you submit your information. DeleteMe's experts will find or remove your personal information and the removal process starts and you will receive a detailed DeleteMe report in seven days. And then DeleteMe scans and deletes your information all year long. DeleteMe's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with DeleteMe, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F-E-D-2-0. Go to joindeleteme.com slash FED and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and helps support our show. Again, Join DeleteMe.com slash Fed and use code FED20, Fed20 for 20% off all consumer plans. Hector and I are very excited to be working with Drata once again. When do you have insight into your company's compliance, security, and risk postures? If it's right before an audit, you're in the same boat as many other organizations. With Drata, G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, you'll have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk, security controls, and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Norton, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it is to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed get 10% off Drata and waived implementation fees. Go to drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Again, Drata. D-R-A-T-A dot com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Please support Drata. It helps Hacker and the Fed if you support our sponsors. They are a great company to work with. 
They are supporting our efforts to make cyber more secure. All right, the next one, scary stuff is what you told me when you sent this one over. Uh, domains like army.ml, pentagon.ml, navy.ml, and af.ml have been forwarded to a, uh, the exchange records have been pointed at handle.catchemail.ml. So it looks like someone back when they set up the .ml, which is uh, the, uh, the domain for Mali, uh, the country, Somebody has set up things trying to catch secrets for sent for things connected to like the U.S. Army that should be like army.mil.mil. Uh, forget the I. So um, it's been reported that millions of U.S. military emails have been uh, misdirected to this these these this email catcher. Kind of scary stuff that uh, this could have happened. Not really understanding how the U.S. military hasn't found this and and red flagged it long ago. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, this is this is what you would call a typo squatting, right? I mean, typo squatting in most cases is like, hey, if you're gonna go to if if you want to set up a scam site to target Amazon users, um, you'll just do a, a typo of Amazon, right? A M A Z O Z O N N, for example, two Ns. It works for a small percentage of users, but once you had a lot of these like these country codes, CCTLDs, top level domains, um, that have come out consistently over the last twenty years. Um, you've had phishing campaigns that actually utilize these country codes as part of phishing engagements. Uh, Cameroon is another popular one. Cameroon, I believe, is .cm. So it's basically, the, you know, it looks very close to like a .com domain. They're very expensive as well. They're about $100 a year for a random domain. But I, I have to say that I was, I, was, I, went, I was surprised that someone had engaged a typo squatting campaign against the military. I, I'll be honest with you. If the military did not see this before, that's that's problematic. But I'm sure someone noticed that these domains existed. Now, the question would be, okay, let's say the military did see this and they were aware of this. Have they tried to contact the country of Mali to see if they could take over those domains? What were the steps taken, right, if any, uh, to kind of deal with this type of squatting issue? If none of that took place, and this is something that kind of went underneath the radar, which I could see happening, What's the real damage? Can the military in any way determine what kind of emails actually went to these type of squatted domains? If if emails are coming from inside military networks, then I think they can. But if they're coming from external parties, like if I were to send a message to one of my boys at the at, at the Air Force and I, I typoed that that email with the ML instead of MIL. Then yeah, they wouldn't know that. They wouldn't. They wouldn't see that. They wouldn't have exposures as to as to that attempt. So yeah, this is definitely problematic. Now, what, what do you think about this? Have you seen this stuff happen with other government agencies before? I can't remember it with government agencies particularly, but I mean, I know whenever we have a client and, and does like a, a business email takeover or anything like that, that that's sort of close to this, you know, we've always suggested to clients that, you know, hey, just buy up everything you can get that's close to your name, that's it's one offs, you know, or typos, you know, getting domains for like 99 cents and just keeping them forever is, is such a good, you know, policy just to, you know, so someone doesn't use it against you. Yeah, man, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is I remember a while back, um, 
this is kind of goofy, but back when I was a bad guy and I was doing st stupid things like breaking into servers, vanity servers, or servers that were connected to like a, like a really nice domain and I would break into that domain and then go on IRC with it. And IRC is internet relay chat where as you connect to a chat or a server, people would see your host name, your incoming host name. And be like, well, look, it's Sabu at fuck.net or something, right? Uh, <laughs> that looked very cool. And so there was a point where I, th I'm, I was young, so don't, please don't judge me too much. But I wanted to go on IRC on like a .gov host name. But I didn't want to do the, gut, the .gov time. You understand what I mean? Yeah. So I would break into uh, a foreign government, in, in, uh, mainly in, in South America, Central America, because they don't use .gov. They use .gob. GOB, right? Um, and then dots, their, their country code. So, for example, I think it's like, see if I get you a good example here. Yeah, it's like the Dominican Republic, for example, it would be like agency name or government agency name dot gob, GOB dot DL. And I would, you know, and Peru is a PE and Spain is ES, et cetera. So, you get the idea. So, I would break it to those kind of servers, uh, hop on IRC, be like, hey, look, I'm, you know, whatever, I'm running, on a, I'm, I'm on a government host. Which, by the way, in hindsight, now I'm thinking about it, looked extremely lame. A cult of Dead Cow would not allow you in with that shit. Oh, no. They would they would kick me out. I'd be the first one kicked out. I'm like, what the hell are you doing with that? <laughs> but yeah, type of squatting is definitely a thing. Um, it's It's been around for quite some time. I hope that nothing too sensitive was leaked as part of, as part of this little campaign. And I, I think you mentioned it before, or maybe on our pre-call, our pre-recording call, you mentioned that the .ml domains are free now, right? Um, I believe I don't so. remember that. Maybe they are, but but I I mean just I double checked this story when I put it together today, and these are still pointed at the same email catcher uh, oh, yeah. domain uh, for exchange. So, um, yeah, scary stuff. Um, you know, so again, pay attention, and you know, emails that'll come into like say you use Outlook and they try to auto populate when you type them in. Double check those. Make sure they're the right. Um, because someone can send you an email from a bad domain and then that, that address will auto-populate like pretty quickly in, in Outlook. So got to pay attention to that. Another thing to pay attention to, new story out. So watch out for this new malicious ransomware disguised as a Windows update. So uh, it was first put out by Fortinet's uh, FortiGuard Labs that there's a new ransomware that is currently on the rise and it's disguising itself as a fake Windows update and Word installer. Um, and it's part of a malvertising campaign. The ransomware is called Big Head. Again, Dragon's Hemorrhoid. I have no idea where they come up with these names. Big Head, um, it, it's displayed as a fake Windows update on people's computer. They click on it, and then it starts their attack by deleting all your backups, mm. um, then checks for the virtualized environment, and then disables the computer task manager to prevent you from uh, the user from deleting it. So That's so annoying. Then it pones you. It just it, it encrypts everything. Wow. Yeah, so how, how do you suggest to people, how do they do their updates? You know, how, how do you do your updates on your systems? Well, I use a, I use my packet management, a pack, package manager for that. I don't think anyone should be downloading Windows updates from anywhere aside from, you know, their own package manager. I mean, Windows itself has, I, I'm not a Windows user, folks, so please bear with me. But Windows itself, if you go into, you know, into the uh, Windows update section of your systems, into settings, it will have, uh, or rather, it will tell you whether or not you need to update. And then, two, you can update straight from that section. Yeah, just go in the little box in the down in the bottom left and type in the word update mm -hmm. and click enter. Yeah. And then it'll check right there 
you know, easiest way of doing it, best approach of doing it. You know, it's 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 insane to me that uh, someone gets an email and they think that's the way Windows is going to tell you you need an update. Are you are you looking at the code for this ransomware? This is this is okay. Let me tell you, folks. Uh, Chris is going to put the uh, the links in there for you. I would recommend just reading through this. So yeah, so the ransomware is definitely called Big Head. It's considered part of the the BBC BBBC malware family. Yes. Um, I'm assuming I know what I know what you normally think that means. Is that what it means? I don't know what it means, but that's what it says. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So we're looking at the the, the kind of the, the, the disassembled features here, or the malware itself, and there's some stuff here that seems pretty pretty average. The naming conventions of the malware are, are super indicators, like one.exe, xarc.exe, and there's other interesting things here, like as soon as the the malware is executed. It you know it goes into ransomware mode. It starts deleting backups. It starts encrypting items. It then it starts to load up these bots. One bot is a Telegram bot. <laughs> oh, they use that for uh, for communications over for the ransom. Yeah, no, I see that. I see the communication for the ransom here. The Telebot is written in, in in Python, by the way. And then what you can see here is that it starts sending messages to. To an identifier, I guess uh, that's the the bad actor group, and there's messages in what seems to be Russian, right? Am I wrong there? Or it, looks, it looks Russian. Have you got to the part where it shows you the encrypted files? What the extension is? <laughs> no, man. Don't tell me. Is, is this something crazy? I see the email they're using is poop news. That's that's pretty yeah, bizarre. Yeah, the the file the file name or is dot poop. Wow, these guys. Oh come my on. god, they called that shit poop. Oh man, these these. Folks, you have to understand, a lot of these actors are kids, okay? You don't, you, you don't want to get compromised by a kid who's calling his malware, you know, ex, you know whatever, dot poop. Well, uh, the wallpaper has a Guy Fox Max. I'll thank you for that. Uh, that wasn't me, but that's before me. I see that now, <laughs> yeah. Yikes, man. This is terrible. Oh, I can't even go on with this. This is a stupid story. But I tell you, Guys, folks. don't yeah. update your shit via email. Yeah, don't download a Windows update over your email and don't download it off a Google ad as well, please. But this ransomware has been popping up in the U.S., France, Turkey, Spain, so it's going to start going everywhere. Yeah, I mean, look, we've seen that some of the most successful malware in history, worms particularly, um, were very simple in nature, written by some people that weren't even technical. Do you remember the Anna Kornikova worm? Yeah, man, that one, and I Love You, or the Melissa one, remember those? Go back to Anna Cornico. I'd open that picture right now if you tell me it, had a, it was still a worm. Well, you know what? If if that were if that worm were to execute or, or be uh, deployed today, I think it might fall for it. <laughs> well, I think our, our our computers might catch it though. Mm. The, our computer our, our computers just flash up. Are you stupid? Are you yeah. stupid? <laughs> Are you sure you want to open this, my friends? Is it 1996 all over again, idiot? Well, I love looking at like malware history. For the, for those of you in the audience that are VX nerds or that virus scene, you know, um, uh, there's there's some really cool stories. Um, in fact, there's a there's a really this, I think I saw like a like a small documentary or recording from Miko Haponen, the CEO and founder of F Secure. He you know was looking through a bunch of malware uh, from his archives. He has like an archive, like a like a kind of like a like a I would say a museum to old malware, and he identified one probably considered one of the earliest strains of malware that was released that he probably identified 
and even reverse engineered with F Secure back when he was building this product back in the 80s or whatever it was. And what's cool is that he he identified that these the malware was written by a couple guys out of Pakistan. And he traveled there to meet with them. And it was this whole big kind of cool get together on on the malware and why it was created and kind of the story behind it. We also saw the same with the creator of the CIH virus. You remember that virus? Sure. This was back in the 90s. CIH, the CIH was interesting because it would spread silently. It would basically, once executed a new system, it would propagate, it would self-propagate and start adding itself to a bunch of binaries on your file system. If you were to take a floppy disk and copy some files over, more than likely you're transferring the CIH virus around. It, I think, I, I have, maybe I have the details wrong, it would either execute on his, uh, on his birthday, on the author's birthday, or his girlfriend's birthday. I forgot which one. Anyways, it turns out that that guy himself, there was a deep dive into the author of the CIH, and he was a brilliant researcher and a coder himself. I don't think he intended for it to be you know, such a disaster as it was. I don't think he intended for it to, to, to kind of propagate globally the way it did as well. I remember I had CIH virus. I'm like, what the hell is this? What does it do? But anyways... The reason I'm telling you guys this story is that you're always going to run into these weird malware, and in this case, the ransomware that comes out here uh, from time to time, and we kind of go over some of the technical details on them. And what you really see is that some of this stuff is written by neophytes. These are not sophisticated actors. These are guys that are probably likely copying someone else's code base. And it really leads you into the problem of attribution. When you try to figure out where this malware came from, where these viruses came from, it's hard to determine who the original author was, uh, unlike back then. But now, because a lot of the code base is similar or the same. So um, going back to what Chris said, don't download your Windows updates over email and don't do it over Google Ads, please. All right, Hector, we got a bunch of listener questions this week. I pulled out some of the best ones we got, and yeah. we're going to go, go through them. So if you guys have questions, questions at hackerinthefed.com. Light plug again, hackerinthefed.com is live for the merchandise, so go get that there. But if you want to ask a question, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector, the first one comes from Chrissy from Kentucky. She says, I have so many questions about this. I'm affected by the Norton Healthcare cyber attack for ransom. Uh, we're getting no information, just the basic. We are working with the FBI. We will keep you informed as we can. Uh, the news channel has proven that employees' information and patient records are on the dark web. Mm. Are we really at risk? How much of a risk and how long will the investigation take? Eesh. Anything you can shed light on would be greatly appreciated. So, Chrissy, I have to tell you the first thing is all we can tell you is public information. And we can read about that story. And then we can kind of give you from our experience um, what's happening. Um, so let's give uh, that the best approach, Hector. Let's, let's kind of talk about the story, uh, what we're finding in the news, and kind of pull some information out of there to either scare the shit out of Chrissy or maybe help her feel a little bit better. I would say let's start with the reality. If patient data or employee data is on the dark web for sale, then it's already too late in terms of risk. The risk is already – you already blew past the risk. So let me tell you what they found already on the dark web from this okay. hack. So the Norton Healthcare uh, is a nonprofit uh, healthcare system in, in Louisville, Kentucky, just for sizing. So people know it's about 600,000 patients per year um, with about $4.7 billion in assets. Uh, it includes five hospitals and eight outpatient centers. 
the system also operates 18 urgent care clinics, mm. 289 doctor's offices, and Norton uh, brought in $3.6 billion in revenue wow. in 2022. So they had a, what they quote, a cyber event that took place May 9th. Norton says it's working with the FBI to investigate the incident, but they're not saying what it is. But what has been found from the hack on the dark web are employee names, social security numbers, and dates of birth, patients' personal information, credit card numbers, medical history, including mammogram images. So I'm going to guess it's some sort of childish, uh, you know, hack to put those out there. But then as far as the Norton healthcare system, they have financial information, operating accounts and payroll accounts with balances of tens of millions of dollars, credit card information, confidentiality agreements, vendor and bank information, and business invoices. And so that's just a taste of some of the stuff that has been found on the dark web. That is tough. And I have to say, uh, for Chrissy and anybody who's, who's uh, you know, I would say patient and or employee of that organization, it seems like the information that's that's most damaging is, is already on the dark web, right? According to the story, at least. My recommendation right right from the jump is obviously you want to deal with your credit cards and, and speak to your processors or rather speak to your providers and change those cards. That's one. And then, of course, uh, right after that, you want to be able to start putting credit freezes on your credit portfolio there um, based on your social security number. You would have uh, Experian and, you know, Equifax, uh, TransUnion. There's also check systems, which uh, that's the kind of a fourth. So a credit freeze, just so you don't know, is so no new credit can be opened in your name. So they can't go and open like a Home Depot credit card or something like that uh, in your name based on the information there. They, there has to be a secondary check um, before a credit line can be opened. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, and even going back to Chrissy's questions here, you know, are we really at risk? Absolutely. You are at risk of someone using your information. And this applies to, again, you know, everybody that their information is being sold on the dark web associated with this organization, associated with this compromise. Um, how much of a risk? Well, let's look at it. If you are part of that ecosystem, then attackers and potential buyers of this information uh, have your name, they have your address, they have your credit card information. They may even have your medical history, depending. I'm sure not, not each victim is going to have the medical history on there, but we don't know that yet. Um, they have your birth dates and social security numbers. Now, if you don't have a credit freeze in place, they have enough information to open up credit cards in your name. If you have a mortgage and the attackers are, you know, are, are wise enough or, or not wise, but they're willing to deal with a bank and pretend to be you to try to play around with your mortgage or try to sell your property or do something outrageous. We've seen some of that stuff in the recent past. Yeah, you definitely want to be able to be proactive in your defense measures on this. And how long will the investigation take? I think Chris can answer that for you better than I. Well, we'll have no idea. We have no idea on that. But let me just put a little color on what you're saying, Hector. So there's a hacking group called Black Cat who has been around since November of 2021, and they do ransoms. Uh, and, and we're going to say they did this. They, Black Cat has come out and said, uh, quote, we have provided more than enough time for Norton's executive board members, uh, but they're failed to show bravery to protect privacy of their clients and employees. So they're coming around and saying they did this. When Hector talks about attackers using that data to do stuff, I don't think Black Cat's going to do it. They're not. They're, that's not the way they're looking at their payday. They're looking to get paid from the hospital system for the ransomware. But because they publish it out online, uh, what's going on out there, other hackers are going to get a hold of that information. Guys that use dumps and, and, and credit cards and stuff like that in order to do stuff. So the particular hackers 
or, or the guys that are claiming responsibility for this attack, I don't think are going to go after Chrissy's information, but they're publishing it in a place that, that, that is going to uh, allow others to do that. And it's terrible, right? Because in some cases, and I've seen this, I've seen this kind of like a broad spectrum. These groups will either sell the entire dump, which is essentially an archive of all the information they were able to obtain and exfiltrate from the victim organization. Um, they'll sell the entire archive for a set price. They'll trade it with other bad actors to get other things, access to other networks, or they'll just sell personal information individually at, on pennies and a dollar. Now, since this is PHI, right? Um, you know, what you may have is a, probably a higher selling price for some of this information because now, you know, scammers and schemers and everything in between, um, they'll pro- they probably have a bunch of different scams they can utilize using your information. So, yeah, I mean, it's a shame. It's definitely uh, problematic. And I'm sorry, Chrissy, and, and, and anyone that you know is affected by this, that you guys have to go through this. Like, this is this is insane. PHI is, is, is you know, valuable. Cause, and I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before. I've said it a hundred times in other places. But so let's talk about PII, your your personal identifiable information. And, you know, that gets stolen. Pain in the ass. You know, get new credit cards, get new information, get new all this other stuff. You can even get a new social security number if you had to. But PHI, you cannot get a new health history. You can't get a new, you know, that that's yours. That's what happened. It's going on with your body. You can't change that. You can't get new ones of that. So PHI, you know, it, it's really tough when it when it gets taken and that your your PHI identity is, you know, kind of taken over. I mean, imagine this, right? Imagine that you are uh, a politician or you're somebody. Never. In- I will never imagine that. <laughs> yeah, same here. But imagine a scenario where you're a politician or you're related to a politician, right? Let's say you're... You're a cousin to the governor of your state, and someone gets your PHI, and there's something there that they could probably use in some sort of propaganda campaign. They could take your name out and put, you know, your your relative's name on it. I mean, there's a lot that you can do with this to to either embarrass or extort, you know, targets. I've personally seen in a situation where there was a foreign official that had come to the United States for medical care. Um, I think I may have mentioned this on the show before, but you know, I had a group reach out to me asking me if I could breach, you know, um, a, a pretty famous, you know, hospital network here just to get the PHI from that person so that they could go back and do like a propaganda campaign in their home country. I said no. Um, and I would never do that. But um, yeah, it's a shame that these attackers are, are targeting, you know, uh, hospitals and the hospital networks, clinics and so on. They're honestly a piece of shits. But yeah. So hey, let me ask you a question. I read in one article that uh, a patient was worried about the mammogram pictures uh, being being lost uh, in the hack um, and that her like mammogram archives, you know, were just gone forever. You know, what do you think about people storing their own PHI? Do you think you should be able to have that? And are people good enough to be able to store that? Because, you know, what if it goes onto a system that you have no control of and then it's gone forever? You know, in the way like, you know, in this particular example, mammograms work, you know, they compare them. We take one picture, you know, a couple of years apart, see what changes have been made. If that initial picture is gone, you know, you relied on somebody else's cybersecurity uh, in order for your own personal health. Do you think that's some you know people should think about storing their own PHI information uh, and not rely on other people's cybersecurity. That is a great question. Thank you. We're that we're going to make that a shirt too. That is a great <laughs> question. Where do you guys get your hacker in the Fed merchandise? That's a great question. 
Well, it, it is a great question because I've I've had conversations about this before with a few friends and family members who were curious as to you know how they could obtain their medical records, um, including you know things like mammograms and and anything else that that um, they feel would be sensitive. Or they, or they wanted this archive for historical purposes. And so you know if you were to go to a hospital, at least a clinic out here, and then request um, some of your records, you will get a printed out you know set of forms and, and sheets and documentation. I've also heard that in some places you can't get that, right? So it really depends on several factors and variables. The problem that I would have with that is that if anybody's going to request a digital copy of their health records, they have to be on top of their personal security game, you know? The one thing you don't want to do is, you know, essentially request that data and transfer it to your home computer and then have your home computer hacked and then now your PHI is out there and being sold. Um, and th- at this point, you can't you can't put the liability or blame on the hospital, right? They weren't breached. You were breached. Um, I personally would store my own if I had the chance, Chris, to answer your question directly. Yeah, I, I would do my mine too. But I, you know, I I don't know if I would feel comfortable if Mom Tarbell was in charge of st- you know storing hers. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. But yeah, this is an interesting case because you know, what if we reach a point where you know. And I think we may have heard a story about this a while back, but like a DNA repository getting hacked. That's scary as hell. The one thing you don't want is for someone somewhere to sit down with your DNA profile or your or your entire genome <laughs> sequence, right? That would be uh, this extremely scary. But not only that, imagine a scenario where an attacker is able to get, or get into a repository. They get access to your, your DNA sequence, and then they forward it as evidence to a case, to some law enforcement agency somehow. I think we're getting into, like, you know, fiction book, you know. Uh, uh, I think that's a great story. We could probably use that in a, maybe a fictional write-up or something, Chris. But, um, no, it gets more scary as you move forward, man. And we see a lot of these attacks, these attackers focusing on healthcare. Um, you know, you, you actually mentioned, you mentioned a really good point a few weeks ago of of law firms. You're noticing a lot of law firms are getting hacked. I've, I've noticed that recently as well, ever since you mentioned it. Well, I, I don't know if that's it. I mean, you, you buy a new car and you see, you know, tw- that car pass you all the time. It, you know, it's just kind of top of mind. I don't know if there really is. But I think the numbers do back up that statement that more law firms are, are at least reporting being hacked lately, which is cyclical because that's 2010 all over again. 2010 <laughs> was the year of the law firms being hacked into. Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, it, it's such an interesting thing. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it is cyclical. Um, but even recently, I've been, you know, I always look at InfoSec News and and you know, for stories for the podcast. And I've been seeing a lot of law firms getting compromised or being compromised. I'm like, okay, wow. You know, what's what's the angle there for the attacker? Well, you know, there's the angle of potential ransomware, right? Maybe a quick ransom drive-by. Um, then, of course, intellectual property and contracts, maybe looking for new victims. Anything, any organization that's storing data, information, intellectual property is going to have um, you know, a lot of set of eyes uh, just staring at them, looking to see if there's any vulnerability that could be leveraged. And it's scary stuff. It's scary stuff. I feel I feel like an asshole sometimes when I think about the fact that I used to do this stuff. Not ransomware. I never did a ransomware. I never was extorting people for money or nothing like that. But, you know, to think that I was breaking into systems in this way, you know, you know now that I'm looking at it 15 years later, I'm like, wow, that was that was kind of terrible, you know? It's my own personal uh guess recognition that this 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 shit is really not cool to be honest i also thought it was terrible that's why i arrested you (laughs) well i'm glad you did Uh, yeah 
All right, next question is from Trista. Uh, Trista's a great listener. She's uh, she's written in a few other times, and she uh, she wants to meet us one day, Hector. So I, ho- I hope we can uh, sit down and uh, meet Trista. Uh, Trista sent in a thing that says, uh, saw this article today about my alma mater and thought you and Hector would be interested. Um, LSU has created a cyber clinic to help protect small businesses against cyber attacks. So just like we talked about a few weeks ago, Google has set up a system uh, where they're going to local universities, a select number of universities, and setting up programs that uh, cybersecurity and and businesses um, can come together and uh, they're going to pay students to help provide cybersecurity relief to some of these small businesses where they can't normally afford it. Um, and it gives the students excellent hands-on experience. So uh, really, not really a question from Trista, just a shout out um, to both the NSA, who, who's putting the money up, and to LSU, who is coming together and building the LSU Cybersecurity Clinic. That is so cool, man. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of this. I mean, you and I have spoken so much about education. Let's get Let's get folks you know, into cybersecurity earlier in their education path. Um, I think we even agreed maybe high school is a good starting point, you know, but it's good to see that LSU is partnering with the NSA to kind of put this together. We need more of this, guys. Um, and I, apl- I I applaud it big time. I'm hoping we can see more of this as we move forward. And, and think about it like this. This also gives an, the NSA an opportunity to kind of build a potential network for recruitment. Yeah, no, I think it's great. So they, they kind of have a, a few different clinics they're going to put together. The first clinic is going to be uh, focused on threat and vulnerability assessments um, and be open to computer science majors uh, and put students on the offensive so they can uh, pretend to be malicious hackers and help company find flaws in their security, do some pen testing. Then they're going to, the, the next clinic is going to be cyber defense for computer science majors um, who can provide recommendations and solutions to small businesses and you know, set up some uh, perimeter um, and some internal guards. And then the, uh, the third uh, clinic is going to be the cyber risk assessment that's going to be open to business majors um, that's going to focus on particular assets and information and operations of the company and develop a workable and effective mitigation strategy. So... You know, any students out there that are looking to get into cybersecurity, and you know Hector and I really push it, um, you know, we talked to uh, your buddy Bill at Marshall. They've got a great program for computer forensics, uh, but now now it looks like, you know, NSA has partnered up with LSU um, to give those guys, you know, I I would definitely send uh, my son who's interested in computers uh, to a company that, you know, to a university that can... uh, you know, provide some hand-on experience. He's not just leaving with a four-year degree, but a four-year degree and actually put his hands, you know, on, on some businesses and was able to, you know, make a difference. That is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Thanks, Tristan, for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So, Hector, I know we have a lot of questions from the users. We have a, a ladies first policy. That's why uh, Chrissy and Tristan went first. <laughs> for sure. Um, but, uh, we're going to do one more question because the episode's getting a little long. So we got other questions from Pete, uh, Alonzo, and Ethan. I promise you, next week, Pete, Alonzo, and Ethan, we will answer your question. Um, but for the last question for this episode, we got a question from Mike. All uh, right. And he wrote, yo, Hector. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Mike, if you don't sound that way. Uh, on one of your recent podcasts, you told a story of how you actually did one of your hacks and your methodology you took. Uh, I listen to your podcast and stories that happen, uh, but listening from your perspective on your story really got me on the edge of my seat. So you got Mike sitting on his edge of his seat. 
talking about your methodology. And it would be really cool to hear more details on other hacks you've done in the past and how they still can be done in today's security. Um, I do know that you and Chris will not put anything on the pod that might encourage some listeners to actually do a crime. That is correct, Mike. We will not encourage crime in one bit. But will be awesome to hear more stories from that. And hopefully, Phineas will not edit out the good parts. Pound anti-Phineas. Oh, um, look at that. No. We got a movement I, going. Yeah. No, I know I said in the beginning that you know I support this anti-Phineas. But now that I read this hateful t- talk, Mike, we love Phineas. I, and I'll only put it... The episode's an hour in, so, well, well, who knows, with Phineas' editing, we might only be 25 minutes in. But anyways, no, we love Phineas, but but still, continue, pound anti-Phineas. So, Hector, tell us about one more methodology. The The audience really wants to hear about your hacking methodology. Yeah, and I, I love kind of sharing the stories, and I'm kind of sharing the methodologies because, you know, like I told Chris before, some of the things that I do now, I did 15, 20 years ago when I was the black hat, um, when I was the bad guy, right? Um, not much has changed. You have new tools and new techniques, uh, defense mechanisms, and you have a lot more sims and logging and centralized logging. And there's a lot of things in place that did not exist or existed, but were rarely used back then. So I'm going to share a story of one of my one of the hacks that made me infamous and kind of actually got me started in hacktivism and this took place in the year 2000 i may have mentioned this before but i want to go into details as to how it actually happened so this is the hack of um i would say in protest in support of the situation in viejas this happened in puerto rico there was and to give you guys a quick backstory 30 seconds there's a beautiful island on puerto rico in puerto rico called viejas is right off i think the south of the island or the, the east of the island um just check the map. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's a beautiful place. Uh, fantastic. Gorgeous. I've met some folks from there. Very nice people. Okay. With that being said, um, there was uh, some protests that took place because the Navy and the Puerto, Puerto Rican government had an agreement that they would use the island for uh, depleted uranium shell testing. Okay, cool. So we got the back the background out the way, the context. You know, there were several groups that were protesting the, the shelling of the island. And I said, okay. Can I participate in this? I've read about hacktivism from Cult of Dead Cow and other groups that they were kind of pushing it. And, um, and I said, okay, well, I'm going to participate. So what did I do? How did I target the Puerto Rican government and the United States Navy? Well, let's start from the beginning. And mind you, 2000, I was, what, 16 years old. So my methodology was very new, very bare. I was still ironing it out. So I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Okay. So the first thing I did was create a inventory of Puerto Rican government web servers and major websites. So this was like the Bureau of Prisons website and the Roosevelt's, you know, I forget what is it, Roosevelt something, Roosevelt Island, and not Roosevelt Island. Um, it was some sort of agency out there. Um, I also looked at websites for the governor's. Uh, office and other agencies like the law enforcement agencies that from from different cities in Puerto Rico. They all had websites. They were all very simple and basic. And I wanted to kind of create an inventory of what these sites were so that I could start going through one, through them each one by one. There was a great tool that was uh, uh, commonly used back then to audit web servers. It was called Nikto, N-I-K-T-O. You can still find it today. It's just not, it hasn't been updated in, in probably you know 15 years. 
and I would use Nikto to go through each web server and try to identify any interesting directories, um, any interesting configuration um, issues that may pop up during the scans. And then, of course, I would look at the uh, web server headers for operating system and or web server name. If I saw something like IIS, I would know, okay, it's a Windows server. Um, if I saw something like Apache, it could be a Windows server with a, a, a Apache Win32 or it could be a Linux Unix server, which th that was where my experience really was with, not Windows or IIS. Uh, but nonetheless, I created an inventory. I, have, I had an asset list, and I started going through each website one by one, or web, each web server one by one. And then I started translating the host names to the IP addresses using DNS. So now I had two columns in my uh, asset list, right? I had the host name or domain name, and then I had the IP address. For every instance where I found there were multiple host names and one IP address, then I figured they would they would be using virtual hosts for the web server. Okay, great. So now the list became shorter as a lot of websites were hosted on the same IP addresses. Okay. So here's what I found out. I found out that a a good portion of the Puerto Rican government websites were hosted on um on a small company, I would say a small ISP in Puerto Rico at the time called PR Star. They're out of business now. The, the, I think the guy retired a long time ago. So that, that business, um, I can mention, they don't exist anymore. Um, that company was run by a guy who set up a bunch of Unix servers and wanted to be a provider of services to the Puerto Rican government. And so PR Star essentially ran a, a, a big chunk of those web servers. The rest of the websites for the Puerto Rican government were hosted by the University of Puerto Rico. Okay, or UPR or UPIR, depending on who you ask. All right, so now you guys have the big picture, right? So we have information gathering, we have reconnaissance, we have identification of web servers and services. We've done enumeration of, of what those services were probably running on the web server. Now it was time to identify potential attack maps. When you have a web server running a ton of IPs, I mean, sorry, running a ton of virtual hosts on one IP, for example, um, they're using a virtual host environment or a virtual host configuration. What that means is that they could run one web server on one IP, and if you go to your web browser and type in, you know, uh, contoso.com and then contoso2.com, they will go to the same server, but depending on what you put in your browser, it'll, it'll set that as or send it as a header, host header, and then the web server would identify what website you're trying to access and redirect you back to that website or the contents for that website. Okay. All right. Now you got all that context out the way. Now, I started going through the, IP, the web servers by IP address without the host names. And I went through, I don't know, 60 different servers. They had a big infrastructure for, for a small company. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. We get the idea. And on one of the web servers, I saw that they had a directory listing. Okay. So that's a common misconfiguration. At one point, that was common. Now, not so much. I think Apache and IIS have disabled directory listing by default. But the directory, directory listing I found for one of the IP addresses showed me all the government websites they were hosting. And if we were to visualize it, it was essentially uh, a list. It, I would say the directory listing was for the folder that hosted all of the other folders for all the websites they were hosting on the server. I hope that makes sense. But that's kind of what the visual looks like. Okay, it's like a directory. Okay. Now we have a directory listing of different folders for different websites. Great. Now I start going through each folder and I'm running into the websites again. They're loading, they're rendering on my browser. Not that interesting. I'm seeing a bunch of government sites. But in one folder in particular, 
I found backups, okay? And they were in tar format, like, you know, like, like Tarbell here. And the tar format is essentially a tape archive. That's really what tar stands for. Um, so I, start, I started downloading the tape archives. And inside the tape archives were actual content for the websites themselves, okay, of CGI scripts. Okay, great. CGI source code is fantastic. For those of you that don't know what CGI is, uh, CGI stands for Common Gateway Interface. I might have it wrong, but that's what I remember. And there were basically scripts that you could execute on a web server prior to the advent of like PHP or you know or any of the different technologies you have now, okay, for web servers. Cool. So now I have access to the CGI source code, and they're all pro scripts. Pro is a programming language. Um, I start analyzing those pro scripts for vulnerabilities, and voila, I found one. On one particular website, there was a CGI script that allowed you to modify um, date and timestamps for uh, something very mundane. It was like a like a log script, and it took in a perimeter, and in that perimeter could be a command like date, time, and a format. So if you wanted a date and time in UTC, you could specify that in um, in the uh, perimeter. And the CGI script will create a backup uh, or a backup of your logs in that format as the file name. Okay. Um, so now you get the drift. You get the idea. Now I'm looking at a pro script that I downloaded from a backup from a web server that had directory listings enabled. Okay. I go. I find a website. I find a CGI path. I put in a, a semicolon ID. And voila, the response and the output is the ID of the web server. Okay, fantastic. So that confirmed that I could actually execute code on that CGI script, right? Very cool. The next step is, well, can I read the et cetera password file? This was in back in 2000. So, you know, my hope was that very similar to the other Solaris servers that I've run into, maybe the password file is just a single file and it's not encrypted. Okay, that wasn't the case. With the server, it turned out to be FreeBSD. And I think at that point, FreeBSD had created um, the kind of the segmentation of an original password file, which is et cetera slash password. And then it would also have the encrypted password stored in et cetera slash master.password. And since the web server was not running as root and did not have um, super privileges uh, or escalated privileges, then I could not read that file. I only had access to um, the file system. And I can only access files that I could read. I had the permission to read as the web server. Okay, cool. So we can execute commands and we can read files from the file system. Interesting. Now, I'm sure any of the listeners now that do pen testing today, 2023, or red teaming in 2023, they're probably thinking, Hector, just do a reverse tunnel, a reverse SSH, a reverse telnet tunnel, or maybe you can do something clever with that. Yeah, that's, that's right. I could have. But no, I was 16 years old. I was still learning. So I, I, I extracted the password file, not the encrypted one, just the regular one. Um, I looked at the usernames and I started brute forcing Telnet. <laughs> um, and one of the accounts that I was able to log into over Telnet was basically, you know, the username as the password. I log into the machine as Telnet. Now I start sleuthing around the server. Um, and here's where it gets crazy. A good friend of mine, Foltech, he's retired from the hacking game as well. He's living a beautiful life somewhere outside of Puerto Rico. Uh, he was like, hey, Hack, uh, or hey, Sabu at the time. Have you looked at their MySQL configuration file? And I said, no. 
says, yeah, you, you should probably check it out because um, it should be readable to you as the web server and it might also contain a password. Check it out. Well, guess what, ladies and gents? He was absolutely right. I looked at the MySQL configuration file. Um, it had the root password stored um, right inside of it for ease of use for the developers. And uh, it just so happens that that MySQL root password was the same root password for sudo, or rather, not sudo, su. Um, su is the command for switching user. I logged in as root. I gained access to the server, and I, then I prepared my defacements. And my defacement of the websites would basically... Uh, uh, a protest against the shelling in Puerto Rico. So that's kind of the methodology that I used back when I was 16 in the year 2000 on one of my biggest hacks ever as my first time as a hacktivist. I gave you the step-by-step on how I identified, how I categorized, rather, how I categorized, how I identified potential issues, how I enumer- enumerated life assets, um, and then, of course, the direction. Now, Think about it like this, ladies and gents. For those of you that are business owners and you're running networks or you're part of a security team, I was a young boy. I was living in the projects. I had no mentorship. I had no training in school. I had no education beyond the ninth grade at that moment. I was not part of a major hacking group, at least not yet. Um, I did not have a, a vast you know, uh, um, tooling, right? a special toolkit of exploits and zero days, at least not yet. It goes to show you, that story goes to show you that with persistence in time, uh, an attacker will likely breach you if they could identify a potential attack path, okay? Um, there's a lot of lessons you can learn from that story alone. I think that um, it was interesting for me because it, it allowed me to think outside the box. And if you were to engage something like a Try Hack Me or Hack in the Box Now, those platforms allow you to um, kind of uh, uh, simulate an attack against a virtual machine or environment, a lot of the techniques that I utilize in that story, in that engagement, are similar to what you might see in some of these engagements on these platforms. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, look at those platforms, take a look at those environments, and you might be able to pretty much replicate the attack I just provided you. So what do you think, Chris, when you hear that story? Oh, hey, I forgot to hit record. Can you repeat that story? Um, no, <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> Phineas is going to cut this all out anyways. There's a standing rule. If he doesn't hear me talk for like 15 seconds, I say cut that all this shit out. <laughs> no, that was fantastic, Hector. Thank you. That really was riveting. Um, I have, I have heard the story before. I have not, I don't think I've heard it with so much detail. Yeah. Um, so I really do appreciate you telling that. And I'm sure the audience is going to love it. All right. We're up at uh, a, a fat episode. So it's nice. getting long. Um, good questions, good stories. Again, next week, Pete, Alonzo, Ethan, I promise your questions will be in the show. Um, we talked about them on the pre-call, yep. and uh, we were going to answer them, but it's just gotten too thick of an episode, so we'll put them next week. Thick with an extra uh, C, you know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> new episode every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Merch store has gone live. Go to HackerInTheFed.com. Order your shirts and hoodies. Uh you know, we set some crazy goal. Let's see if we can move, you know, 100 shirts this week, Hector. Yeah. Let's see if uh, if we can get it done. That's so, outrageous. Uh, but You guys go out there. we got a lot of listeners, a lot of people asking for the merch, and so there there it goes. There you go. Um, you know, if there's certain things that you guys want, I think there's a section where you can like, ask for custom orders. So just reach out, and we'll try to get it done, I promise. Hector, another great conversation. I have to go pee, so I am going to say cheers. Cheers, my friend. 